There's three readings tonight. First is Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. The second is Matthew 5, 27 to 30. And the third is Romans chapter 13, verses 18 to 14. Exodus chapter 20. You shall not commit adultery. Matthew 27 to 30. You have heard it that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully and has already committed adultery with her in his heart, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And finally, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. Let no doubt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. Send your spirit upon us now that we can listen to your word, learn and obey. Amen. So as you've all gathered, this evening we come to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. So this commandment is given in the context of the loving God who by grace rescues his people from slavery to live a new life of covenant relationship with him. Our primary relationship, as expressed in the first four of the Ten Commandments, is our relationship with God. God is married to his people and we are called to be faithful to him. God is a God of faithfulness, and we are called to be faithful people. Human marriage is a covenant relationship in which people make vows of exclusivity to each other, and we're all called to honour those. So I think tonight there's something here for all of us, whether married whether single, 
Because as Christians, we're all called to covenant relationship with Christ. And this is both individual and corporate, as we form part of the church, the bride of Christ. So let's have a think about what is adultery. In most societies, adultery is a forbidden act. So there's nothing really surprising that it appears here as one of the thou shalt nots. Secular societies value the positive benefits of what I think our Prime Minister calls the institution of marriage. And those societies recognise the family and they recognise the damage that can be caused to the family, society and the relational damage that's caused by infidelity and by broken relationships. Adultery is defined and continues to be redefined in different cultural contexts. But what I'm thinking tonight is that for us, it is a sexual relationship with another person who is married, but not to you. So, so far, it sounds relatively simple and straightforward, and surely you'd think not too much of a problem. But let's have a look at the passage in Matthew. What does Jesus say? And if we think about the context of this, if we go back a few verses to verse 20, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says to them, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what was the righteousness of the Pharisees that needed to be surpassed? And I've taken a verse from Luke 18:11. As we remember, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So we see that the Pharisaic mindset is confident and thankful that it keeps this commandment interpreted narrowly as a physical act of adultery. But Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says to them, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So I think we can draw from that that adultery is something that is spiritual, physical, and emotional. They're not separate, but connected, reflecting as they do that human beings are made in the image of God, body, soul, and spirit. And as we continue our faith journey, we're being remade in that image of God. So in this passage, Jesus reminds us that the root of the problem lies in the heart. So 
So let's think about this as emotional adultery or what's going on in our hearts and minds. As some of you will know, I've been a divorce lawyer for a long time. Often one of the best ways that I find that I can serve in this job is simply by listening to what people say when I first meet them. And the pain is often particularly raw when there's been a recent discovery of unfaithfulness. Now, unfaithfulness comes in many forms. Of course, there's the physical. But the sense of betrayal can be as keenly felt when a relationship with someone else stops short of the physical. I think we need to think about why this is. And I think that what I've discovered is one of the reasons is that adultery necessarily involves deceit. The lies start. I'm working late tonight. I actually don't need to have an itemised telephone bill anymore. Marriage should be a safe place where we're free to be ourselves with another person without pretending to be someone that we're not. Openness, trust, and honesty are key ingredients. So as the lies unravel, the trust vital to a healthy and strong marriage disappears. And many people have expressed to me that whilst they might in time be able to forgive a physical act of adultery, they seem to find it much harder to forgive the deceit that surrounds that act because actually they discover that the lies and the deceit permeate every area of family life. So I think that we need to be careful when we concentrate too much on the physical and remember that the emotional aspect of it can be just as upsetting as it upsets the equilibrium of the oneness of the special marriage relationship. And Jesus also affirms that the true meaning of God's command is not just confined to the physical. So just as the prohibition of murder, as we discovered last week, includes angry thoughts and slanderous words, so too adultery includes the lustful look and what goes on in the eyes of our imagination. So before we go any further, let's be very clear about what Jesus is not saying. He's not against sex. He's not against sexual desire. But lust isn't the same thing as sexual desire. Sexual relations expressed within the commitment of marriage are a God-given gift And they're part of the way in which intimacy is both established and maintained. But I think that what Jesus does have in his sights is sex and inappropriate sexual desire outside the protected covenant relationship of marriage. 
He's not forbidding looking. What he's forbidding is looking lustfully. And I think that it's perfectly clear that this teaching applies as much to women as to men. I remember one famous English male sprinter who said that the looks of some women made him feel like a slab of meat. And I think that it also speaks as much to the married as to the unmarried. And I think that what Jesus is condemning is the Pharisaic tendency to a narrow and legalistic definition and interpretation of adultery. And I say that we do that at our peril. We don't want to fall into the same trap. Now, as an example, I think sometimes it's easier to look at uh, the messes and muddles that other people make. (laughs) So one of the examples I thought that we might uh, need to uh, have a look at is that I think many of us who are over a certain age will remember the former United States President, Bill Clinton, who was also a lawyer. And uh, many of us will remember that he had a relationship with Monica Lewinsky. But actually, when he took the stand, he stated on oath, I did not commit adultery with that woman. (laughs) So maybe he had an extremely legalistic and narrow definition and understanding of what adultery comprises. So we learn that looking lustfully is committing adultery in the heart. And it applies to us whether married or single, male or female. So I think we need to look and see what's so wrong with lust, traditionally described as one of the seven deadly sins. And I think we learn once again that the problem with sin is that it often starts with something good. And we've seen that sexual desire is one of God's good gifts to us in marriage. But it's sin that twists and distorts. So lust, for example, when it's clothed as pornography, depersonalizes by treating people as objects. It desensitizes the one who looks and it dishonors God and it dishonors the wronged spouse. So if we let the eyes of the imagination start working in this way and we start thinking, well, what would it be like to be married to that person? What would it be like to have sex with that person? And we just need to know that this thought has a nasty tendency to happen to move on. So what happens in all of this is that we think of this person only as a physical body. And the thoughts become obsessive. And before much longer, it's becoming all about power and control. And it's destructive. Unfortunately for us, we live in a culture where sex can come in a relationship at a very early stage. 
before the protection of any commitment has been entered into. And we just need to understand that any sexual relationship involves all parts of our beings, not just our bodies. And a lot of hurt can follow. And as we think of this, we need to think about how we respond as a community. And we need to be a supportive, countercultural community, particularly in which we encourage our young people that it's not just because the Bible says so that they should wait, but that actually it will be better for them and it will save them a lot of heartache and sorting out later on. So let's think about what lies at the heart of lust and how do we distinguish it from love. So I think at the heart of lust is utter selfishness. It's all about me. What I want, I can't wait. I need to satisfy my needs because I'm at the center of the universe. I worship myself, and I serve only myself. And so I become my own God. So this is in stark contrast to the love-motivating service that we read of in our Romans passage. So we think about the title of the heading for this sermon, Sex no big deal well I think we've come a long way round from thou shalt not commit adultery only to find ourselves back to the first two commandments so the worship of ourselves expressed in this instant of lust is idolatry the problem in the spiritual area finds expression in the soul and body. And it's for our nurture and protection that God in love ordains that sexual expression is only safely expressed in marriage. In lust, people always get hurt. In Psalm 51, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and arranged for the murder of her husband, David finds himself confessing, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. His heartfelt cry to God, Create in him a new heart and renew in him a steadfast spirit. So I think we need to think about ways that we can avoid falling into the trap. And I'd like to start looking back in Matthew, verses 29 and 30, and then we'll think about something that uh, Jesus doesn't mean. And I think one thing that Jesus doesn't mean is he doesn't mean to be literal in cutting it off. Many of you will know that the third century scholar Oregon, in his zeal for extremes of asceticism, renounced possessions, food, sleep, and then made himself a eunuch. Don't go there. Mutilating the body denies the essential goodness 
of God's creation and denies the wholeness of our being. We're neither just body, we're not just soul, we're not just spirit. Harmony and balance are everything. And by such a literal action, we're actually denying God's ability to recreate us and transform us. But we do need to look at how our eyes and our hands may be a problem for us. Christians call it mortification. In this case, this means putting our lustful thoughts to death. And if we're not taking this area seriously in our lives, we probably do need to remember that in the Old Testament, the penalty for those caught in adultery could be death. So we need to be real with ourselves. We need to be real about our individual weaknesses. And we need to take responsibility for them. We need to die to sinful practices and desires. So we all have a responsibility for what we look at. We live in an age where At hand, by the click of a button, pornography is available. And it's clearly an area where some people struggle. And the point about this is that we need to deal with it quickly. Because if it gets a grip, if it gets a hold, it's just inviting disaster. We need to think about other methods of communication that are usual for us. Texting. Flirting by email, because what happens there may well move on into an action. So we need to be real with ourselves, and we need to turn back. And for any who've already fallen into the trap, let's think about that. There'll be many who found marriage hard. There may be some who thought that looking at porn was harmless. But then what they discover is it's a bit like eczema. The more you scratch, the more it itches. We may discover that our wills in a different area are not quite as strong as we thought they were. But what we have to learn is that this is an area of our lives that we shouldn't compartmentalize. It's sometimes easy to try to deal with it in that way, but then we're behaving as though God's only interested in part of our lives and that God's going to turn a blind eye to an area that we might wish that neither he nor anyone else knows about. But I do think we need to be encouraged. God is merciful and faithful. At each point along the road, from the beginning to further on, whether we're sinned against or sinner, God invites us to turn to him for cleansing and for restoration. Often the mistake that people make is that they think that things have gone too far. And so people start to doubt whether God can help them in this. And sometimes the instinctive reaction at that point is just to run away. The right way, however, the God way back, is through heartfelt repentance. 
And thinking again about King David, described as the man after God's own heart. His heart had become so hardened to sin that he committed both murder and adultery and was living as though he'd got away with it. David was saved from that by God's grace. And so can anyone for whom any of this is a problem or an issue. So what might the antidote to sinful hearts be? And so we can lift up our own hearts as we think about the passage from Romans. And as we get the answer that the antidote is love. In one of my devotions this week, I read the following. Love is divinely born. It is an exotic which does not naturally flourish in human soil. It needs watering from above or it will wither and die. Love must feed on love. So let's remember the primacy of our spiritual relationship with Jesus. From this passage, let's remember his costly faithfulness to us so that sinful people might in repentance receive forgiveness. We are called to crucify our sinful natures. And then God sees Jesus in our place when we clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, taking advantage of what he has won on the cross for us so that we might live. And how will this be lived out in our lives? I think we'll demonstrate in our lives by faithfulness to the marriage covenant. Because as we read in the passage, love does no harm to its neighbor. And if we're married, our nearest neighbor is our spouse. We all need increasingly to reflect the divine love in our souls and bodies. Now is the time to put aside the deeds of darkness and to put on the armor of light. The problems of the sinful nature are to be overcome by the power of God's love. We need to be filled in our hearts with the power of that divine love. And there's no time like now to take advantage of God's love and faithfulness to us expressed in Christ. The sooner sins are confessed to God before they take root, the better that will be. And I think that's the urgency of the message in Romans. We're told to wake up. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Don't run away from God. Run to him. Because he will forgive And he will restore. And what does he promise us in return? The gift of the filling of the Spirit. Living life in the Spirit filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Let's pray.
Father, in a moment of silence, we ask you to speak to each one of us, to show us if there's anything in us that you would wish us to come to you with.